Our scripture reading this morning is going to come from a couple of different places. We'll be working from Exodus 19, then from Jeremiah 31, and then from 1 Peter chapter 1. Begin in Exodus 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. There they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And then from Jeremiah 31, verses 16 through 20. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined. Like an untrained calf, bring me back that I may be restored. For you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear child? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. And all the way to the back. First Peter. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And then we'll skip ahead to chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and, the sprinkle, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. As we get into our text this morning, as you already know, 
We are, uh, well, John is going to be beginning a series through 1 Peter, um, one of the epistles towards the end of the big book, um, in which we have the voice of Peter himself, this disciple who we all love so much because his victories were big and we can see them clearly, and his failures were big, and so we can then stand confidently along with him no matter what our failures have been. Uh, it's really wonderful to track this person and the progress that the Holy Spirit led him through as he followed Jesus. Uh, John did an excellent job last week of just reminding us of exactly who he was. He was never an apostle who needed to be kind of corralled or, or reoriented because of his passion for what is true and what is right. He was insightful and clear on those points time and again. Uh, but he was the apostle who often had to be corrected, redirected, and even boldly and in some ways terrifyingly rebuked because he was not gentle, because he would turn people away from Christ, because in fact he would even turn Christ away from people, and because he would be very hesitant to extend the kingdom beyond his own understanding of who was acceptable and who was right and who was good. So it is fascinating as we approach 1 Peter because uh, scholars are by and large in agreement that the people that who he's, he's writing to are not actually Jews. They may be, and there were probably many of them scattered amongst them, but he's writing typically to a Gentile people group. Uh, and also kind of scattered across the first pages of this letter Peter is laboring to emphasize their place, not as just kind of people who can tag along with the people of Israel, but actually as the right inheritors, the, the true children of Abraham, that these Gentile believers are actually the ones whom God had been working towards all along. Even referring to their neighbors throughout the book as the Gentiles, and them as the people of God. Giving them what had so far only been attributed to um, the Jews, which was to be the vehicle of God's blessing to all mankind. So this week, in preparation for digging into the letter itself, First Peter is um, not necessarily unique, but it is ahead of so many of the other books of the New Testament in that it references so, so much of the Old Testament, drawing time and time again through direct quotes, through um, just kind of key words that are linking back through all kinds of different uh, flags to let us know, I'm saying this thing, but I'm actually pointing you back towards this other thing. Um, because he is so adamant about uniting this Gentile group of believers to their historic family of the people of God being the children of Abraham. Uh, that's because the audience that he's writing to, um, that he calls the elect exiles of the dispersion, uh, he's writing to the modern day Turkish peninsula. And the places that he identifies within it, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, this recommend, this um. I'm sorry, identifies kind of the whole swath of that entire peninsula. Um, east, south, southwest, 
northwest and central of this whole entire area. And he's identifying them as elect exiles, again, not because they represent the Jewish people in those areas, though there would have been plenty who would be a part of this group, but because they are members of the dispersion because they are the scattered people of God, because they are living lives separated from their spiritual home. And because they have come into the way, because they have joined the church, they are living as minorities in religious practice. And that would have stood out in ways that would have made other people uncomfortable. It would have thrown up separations between their families, between their neighbors, between just the people that they were in community with. Even, even it would have thrown up challenges for them in terms of how they go about their vocations and they do their work and they, they accomplish their jobs within the community. And throughout all of this, their experience was that once they started to follow Jesus, their lives did not become easier, but they actually became harder. And whereas all of us, as we come into the faith and as we first get to know Jesus and there's this excitement because of all of what he has done and it is right and it is true that that excitement should be there, there comes a point where that starts to kind of go, okay, but, but when's he coming back? When do we start to win when does my people start to get up on top? When do I start to have the cultural influence where people recognize that I'm right and that the other ways are wrong? And then these believers, I think, like the rest of us, start to struggle and start to falter and start to go, where is the kingdom? Where is my victory? When will my brother finally see, oh, I'm right and you're wrong? When will my neighbor who's pushed back against me for so many things finally be humbled and have to admit it? And, and it hasn't happened for them when it's been a couple thousand years, and I don't know about you, but that hasn't really happened for me yet either. And so the struggle that the people whom Peter is writing to is that it doesn't feel like they're winning. They're still on the outside and life continues to be hard. And so Peter responds to these struggles by anchoring them more broadly in God's story. And as we'll see, specifically he anchors them in their membership in his family, their membership and a people who are called by love and frustrating as it may be, called toward suffering, discomfort, displacement, being on the outside. And this is because as Peter builds out, this is actually who Jesus is. You see, the kingdom that Jesus came to build, he had all kinds of opportunity to claim, to be pushed to the forefront. Satan himself tempted Jesus with this. Would you only make your glory and your power known, and then I will bow all the nations before you. And Jesus chose a different way. Instead of rising up to the throne, he rose up to the hill to the cross at which he was crucified. Instead of overcoming all of his enemies by raising an army, he weirdly and frustratingly, and if we're honest, disappointingly, laid himself down before all of his enemies 
and he lost the strategy and his victory was actually a death which is still confusing and hard at least for me and yet nonetheless what Peter does is he meets his people that he's writing to these ancient Turkish believers he meets us as well as current modern recipients of his letter with the story of the people of God and with the one who fulfilled it by coming not to exhort his power and strength over his enemies but by embracing the suffering that was set before him and then even intentionally stepping into the suffering of the people around him and exhausting all of his resources that we might be brought home again to our Father. That we might then find a victory that is greater than politics. A victory that is greater than influence. A victory that is greater than power. And actually brings us into a victory of love. A love that can then rest in the Father's security. And then move towards our neighbors who are also suffering. Inviting them into that security before our Father as well. So the question that we're going to be kind of looking at this morning is, what is this story that Peter builds on that anchors in love and flips suffering? And it's worth noting that this is a story that can be kind of easy to miss, because um, while Peter rolls through in these first chapters, um, he does so using specific quotes and a lot of references, but these are all kind of insider language. He uses a lot of kind of what we might understand now as like hyperlink speech. Have you ever gotten lost on Wikipedia? Um, you came there to look up one thing and then you go, oh, well, this is interesting. And you click the blue words and it opens up a whole nother page and you read the first paragraph and you go, oh, well, I do want to know more about the Ottoman Empire. And so you click on that and then it exhorts you to all these other people. And you go, oh, I had no idea that guy was there. And so you click on that link and then before you know it, you're like, oh, connected into this much bigger thing than what you initially went. That's what Peter's doing. He's using hyperlink language. Um, another way to think about this is... Um, well, I'm a big fan of Led Zeppelin. <laughs> Thank you. There you go. And if you know much of Led Zeppelin, or if you've ever sat next to someone who loves Led Zeppelin just a little bit too much, then you're also aware of how much Jimmy Page loved, and Robert Plant, I'm sorry, forgive me, um, loved J.R.R. Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings. And the ways that throughout so much of his music, he writes in allusions to Mordor and to the ring race and to Gollum and to these struggles. And if you've read the interviews, um, Plant talks about how he, as a young person, realized he didn't have a huge amount of life experience. And yet he knew one who wrote stories that were so much bigger than him. And so he figured he could draw on his words from those stories in order to bring more people into his own music. Um, and I'll stop there because I know you already don't care that much about Led Zeppelin, even though I do. Um, but if I were to sit down and try to um, write music myself, it would probably be steeped with the words and the stylistic influences of the people whom I listen to. So just as a, a practice to warm us up for Peter, okay, bear with me, we're going to do a little exercise this morning. Um, so if I were to write songs, and you were to read my lyrics, and they were to go something like, yesterday... 
Eleanor Rigby came in through the bathroom window and I saw her standing there across the universe on Penny Lane and hey Jude, it's been a hard day's night. So if you have a ticket to ride, you can drive my car down the long and winding road through the Norwegian wood. <laughs> Who would I have been listening to? The Beatles, there you go. I've said nothing about John, Paul, Ringo, or George, but, but you know, like, you've got those hyperlink words. Okay, so if that's not you, you're a different generation. If I were to write a song and you were to read it and it said, a cardigan in August? That'd be a cruel summer. Let's go back to December because snow on the beach hits different. I knew you were trouble as an anti-hero, but shake it off. Bad blood is better than revenge. <laughs> Who am I talking about? Who have I been listening to? Yeah, I'm a Swifty. There you go. Um, or if, if you might be a little bit younger generation and you want to keep tracking with me, guys, I see you in here. Um, if you were to read my, the words to my song and it said, show yourself the next right thing and then let it go. Because for the time, I'm sorry, because for the first time in forever, reindeers are better than people. I may be lost in the woods, but love is an open door, man. So in the summer, when I'm older, do you want to build a snowman? <laughs> Come on, kids, what have I been listening to and watching? <laughs> yeah, Elsa, Frozen. Um, those are the songs that are woven through there. I, I want you to see, this is what Peter is doing in the opening chapters of his book of his letter. And so um, in order to make sure we've got the right story on his mind, I want to review today what that story is. Because we can take it for granted and we can move through it presuming that we know and hopefully we do. But let me be that Led Zeppelin nerd sitting next to you on the car ride. Um, and let me bring you back again into this story that Peter was so infatuated with. And that he knew set up this person of Jesus Christ so beautifully. And that he knew whether they were ethnically belonging to this story or not, or brought in by faith and love, is what would ultimately ground his people. Um, D.A. Carson, commenting on this section of scripture, says that there is a rich profusion of Old Testament sightings in 1 Peter which he estimates running to about 41 different connection points that Peter is trying to get. He's, these are hyperlinks that he's getting his readers to come back to and know what story he's talking about. He says that throughout the book, if we're counting the quotes, allusions, echoes, and themes, he says that scarcely a verse in this entire epistle would be exempt from an Old Testament allusion. And so as we prepare to follow John as he leads us through studying this on Sunday mornings. It's right to step back and consider this. So again, for this suffering people who feel like they're not winning and are really confused about whether they're supposed to or not, Peter tells them the story and he unites them in it as their story. And it is what is to anchor us in the love of God and then flip us so that we don't have to fear our suffering, but it actually becomes something that we intentionally and purposefully walk into. And not only that, but then we take on the suffering of our neighbor and we make it our own. And we lay down every resource and every strength that we would have, every way that we do not naturally need to suffer because of who we are. 
so that we might take up the sufferings of our neighbor. This is First Peter. This is what we're going to get into. So, where to begin? Um, if you'll look with me, First Peter, chapter one, verse one. And I promise we won't just go like every single verse all the way through. We don't have time for that. Um, I'm watching the clock. We'll be all right. Um, but his letter opens up with these words: Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles, and we have to stop there because that's when his Old Testament hyperlinks start clicking in. These words, elect exiles, we get that and we go, oh, Bible speak. Um, but, but when Peter is saying that, again, this is a Wikipedia like open up the next page and then open up the next page and then open up the next page because who are the elect exiles? Stories of elect exiles are key to all of Jewish history all the way back through. Most immediately, it comes back to um, persecution where Jews have been scattered all over the known world. Um, even before that, it then links back to when Babylon had captured Israel and Judah and taken all of the people and then intentionally scattered them all over the known world. And even then before that, key to their whole identity as a nation is their time when they had um, run into Egypt as refugees and been couched there for a long time, and then the opinion and the heart of the people of Egypt and even the king turned against them, and then they were forced to then, by God's deliverance, leave Egypt and wander out as refugees, exiles, into unknown lands. And then even back before then, we can trace this, these words would have, um, again, been connecting to them beyond the Exodus, all the way back to Abram, Abraham, their great forefather, who, as one of those people scattered from the fall of the Tower of Babel and the scattering and spreading of languages, were then forced out to go wander in other places. Abraham himself is the quintessential elect exile, someone chosen by God, even as he's out of his own country. But then it links even further back to that because we have to then consider Adam and Eve. The first people, our first parents, formed by God in the garden and love and for glory. And then what did they do? They rebelled against him and were exiled from his presence, even though he continued to love them and prepare for them and clothe them and protect them and make covenants with them. So you just need to know, and again, we won't trace every single one, but Peter's not messing around. He is saying... Eleanor Rigby came in through the bathroom window and he wants his people to go, oh yeah, the Old Testament, I get you. He wants his people that are reading to see you're connecting me to the whole tribe of Israel. Again, called by love, but then called towards suffering. So we'll see this. If you look at Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three, you see the call of Abraham himself. Abram at this point. And God unites these two things. He says to him, if you'll bear with me while I turn towards it. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Called in love. Called for blessing of those who are outside of God's blessing. Of those who are under the curse. Called into 
suffering. If we look ahead, down in verse 13, Peter says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Or, I'm sorry, he says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's even in this language pulling them back again to the book of Exodus, um, where as instructions are given for the Passover meal, when they paint the blood of a sacrificial lamb over their door so that the plague of darkness and of death, of judgment against the firstborn son of all who are in the land of Egypt might pass over them. And he says, when you eat this meal, dress, prepare your bodies for action. Get all the way ready to go because this is a meal where you gotta be ready. By the time it's done, you gotta be out the door. This is language that would have cued their mind exactly back to that scene. Um, again, known and remembered in their slavery in Egypt, but then called into suffering because that journey out of Egypt was not easy. And it led them into the wilderness. Did you catch when we read Exodus 19? The, in the wilderness, they went into the wilderness. And where did they go? They followed God to the wilderness. And when they went to the mountain, it was the mountain that was in the wilderness. And they were called into struggle. They did not feel like they were winning. And beyond that, in verses 14 through 16, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is a direct quote back to the book of Leviticus, where God is instructing the people on all the holiness laws and how they are to set themselves apart and to be different from all of the nations around them so that when the nations encounter them, they go, whoa, this is weird and I don't understand it, but it's also good. So as Peter is writing this, his people, he's saying the same thing. You are part of this holiness. He wants to draw their mind back. Now again, what God is doing is he's equipping his people for holiness. He's saying, I am the one who is holy, and so you also must be holy. And the laws that he's giving them and the rules are the provisions by which they might then accomplish, or at least pursue, that call. It's an act of mercy and an act of love for them to be able to reflect his holiness. And yet also this is being done in the wilderness. A most uncomfortable place to be. So that all their other dependencies are being stripped away from them. You remember what happened in the wilderness? Did they have water to drink? Not often. Did they have food to eat? Not at all actually. God provided breakfast, lunch, and dinner for them new every single day. And they could not depend on their own production and they could not depend on their own provision because they're a huge tribe wandering through the wilderness, the waste. And they would not have made it on their own outside of his provision. Called by love, called towards suffering. If we skip a little bit further ahead in verses 22 through 25, he said, Peter says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. 
For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. There's so many things that he's doing here. He's tying them back into the curse that he put against um, the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Uh, I will put enmity between your offspring and his offspring. He will strike your heel and he, or he will strike his heel and he will crush his head. He will bruise his heel and he will bruise his head. This is the language. This is the seed, the imperishable seed, the seed that will bring deliverance, that will not be stuck under the curse of death. It is imperishable. But then he's also tying into, through these quotes and references, so much back through the prophets. And we don't even have time to go through all of them, but that's part of why we, we read our, our welcome, our call to worship from where we did. Because where are the people now? They have failed in their mission time and time again. They had to go into exile under Babylon. But even there, what were God's words to them? Comfort, comfort my people. Because they're in the midst of suffering, in the midst of struggle, brought on their own heads by their own actions, but also under the abuse and terror of the people that they lived under. But God said, even there, comfort, comfort my people. And then even what we read from Jeremiah, that he has not forgotten in each moment, even when he pronounces judgment, this is his child. And so of course he is on his heart, even with the words of judgment, and of course he will preserve a remnant. Called by love, but called into suffering to burn off all of their distractions and all the ways that they would go their own way. If we could go so much further, but we won't. We'll press on their enduring mission for the nations. And we look in chapter two, verses one through eight, where Peter says, so put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone is, uh, that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. We certainly don't have time to trace all of these down. But we've got quotations from Psalm 118, verses 22. We've got um, references to Isaiah 28, 16 through 17, and so many other sections that follow. Because what's being done when he uses temple language, the temple was certainly a place of worship. But in the Hebrew understanding, it was, it was even more than that. Because if you recall the story, Adam and Eve had been exiled from the garden. That was the place where heaven, you've got to view it almost like a Venn diagram. Heaven above the earth beneath, and there's that middle section, and where is that? Well, that's where the presence of God is. That's Eden. And so when the people were called out of Egypt and equipped in the wilderness, they were given a tabernacle, a temple, a dwelling place, 
where again, that overlapping part of the Venn diagram was there, where God's presence was with the whole world and the people. And if you wanted to come to the presence of God, you went there. That's why when Elijah runs after he's terrified before Ahab, where does he run to? Back to the mountain where they received the Ten Commandments so that he could be again in the presence of God where heaven overlapped with earth and earth quaked and burned in his presence. All of these things, all of these things are being brought back to mind. Until kind of the climax of this, we look in verses, chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. But you, you Gentile, exiled, suffering, friendless believers trying to make your way in this life, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This echoes so strongly of that call that we read at the beginning back in Exodus chapter 19, where God, before giving them the law, summarizes their path so far, and he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And he's saying, you're not them. I will not treat you the way that I treated them to bring your deliverance. I have come on the rescue for you. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, and this is, yes, there's conditional elements to this, but this is also, you need to read this as invitational. If you will, he's saying, come in, do this, strive after it, try it. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This kingdom of priests, was it ever done? Well, no, because that's the introduction of when God gives his law to the people. But then when Moses goes up the fiery, smoking overlap of heaven and earth to meet with God, what are the people down at the base of the mountain doing? They're building the golden calf, celebrating in debauchery and abandoning all that God had done for them. They could not be a nation of priests and so God turned the story so that they would be a nation with priests. But what is the role of the priest? The role of the priest is to say to those around them, come in, because here is the presence of holiness. How can you make up for your sins? Well, you can't, but we have a whole sacrificial system that will tell you of one who will, who will remind you that the offspring of the woman will one day bruise the head of the offspring of the serpent. That this temple that we had that was destroyed when we got taken over, that is not the only temple. 
Rather, the love that God is building in your hearts is that temple. And so therefore, you can be that temple because Jesus Christ has fulfilled all of what the temple should be. He is the one that brings the people back into the presence of God. And even more than that, he is the initiative taking people pursuing presence of God that breaks into us. He is the holiness in the wilderness. The one who says, when you cannot reflect who I am, I will nonetheless fulfill all of that and reflect it for you. This is who Jesus Christ is. When we're called back to remember the Passover and the Exodus, when we could not free ourselves from our bonds and failed utterly over 400 years, but God entered in and he brings us out in the ultimate fulfillment of that. The one whose blood we now paste over our doorposts is Jesus Christ. And he has accomplished this for us. And so you elect exiles. You may be outside of your own home. And you may be outside of your own story. And you may not be winning. But Jesus Christ is playing out God's story. And you stand as inheritors of that. Heirs of the kingdom. And so no matter what is going on. If it is your suffering. Be encouraged. Because you are a people equipped for suffering that you might rest on God and God alone. And specifically on Jesus Christ. And if you happen to find yourself not suffering. Well then your call is to praise God for that. And to leverage all of your not suffering. In order to take onto your own shoulders the burdens of those around you. I mean the theme of this runs throughout so much of scripture. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be held on to, but made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant and humbling himself to the point of death, even the ignoble death on a cross. So brothers and sisters, even here as we stand in this love, I want you to see just like the recipients of Peter's letter. In this world you will have trouble. But you stand as members not of your own family, but of the family of the people of God. You stand as inheritors not of your own story, but of God's story that is at work and is playing all the way through. And because of that, you can know that you are chosen, even amidst exile, because of love. And then even amidst exile, you are equipped to be all of what Israel could never have been. To be all of what you could never be on your own. Because you have the one who is the presence of God. The one who is the temple. The one who is always at home before his father. The one who is the cornerstone upon which all things are. So that you then also might be what Israel never was. But Jesus accomplished. A priest of God the father. Entering into his presence. Bringing his goodness to the burdens of the community around you. And now even... As we come here to this table. This is what we are doing. Because what we are doing here when we eat and when we drink. Is we are taking his body into us. We are being remade by his story. Which is all of God's story from the very beginning through the very end. So that we might stand here and be remade in him. 
so that we can take our place, so that me, so that you can be the nation of priests that Israel never could outside of Jesus. But you have Jesus. And so you are Israel in ways that they never could have been. And so as we come, if you have not trusted on Jesus to be that fulfillment of your story, it would not be right for you to take him in here. But it would be right for you to consider what story you're living and to wonder what your hope is in life and in death. And to evaluate, are the things that you lean on enough to uphold you amidst all of life's struggle? And to see that just like the rest of Israel, it's not. But you have one who is the person of Jesus Christ. And he is here and available. So let me pray for us before we come to the table. Father, your goodness is overflowing and overwhelming. And so, Lord, would you awaken our minds and our hearts to remember your story? That we would break them out of the children's book summaries that we often leave them in. But we would reimagine them in such ways that we find ourselves standing within them so that they are not a story, but that they are our story. Even more than that, that we might be reminded of the ways that they are your story. That we have the privilege and even the call to then be rooted in that love and launched in that mission to shoulder the suffering you put before us and the suffering of our neighbors, even in joy.